0: Let me say a word of prayer, and we will uh, get after it. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for these uh, anticipations and foreshadowings of the once-for-all sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, for our salvation, through which we are cleansed, by whom our sins have been driven away as far as the east is from the west. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bless and enrich our study of your word, give us a a more firm conviction of who you are and who you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to uh, get after this right away in terms of, uh, we're, we're at Leviticus 16, verse 6, okay? Um, and here we have, uh, it comes up, one of the, probably, probably the most significant question in this passage, in this text. It says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And we are reading that, you're hearing that, and you're probably thinking, who in the world is Azazel? This is the first that I've heard of it. But does anybody have other translations other than the ESV? Do, do, do you have a translation that doesn't say Azazel in there? and something else. Um, say again? What oh, um, let's see. What is it? Verse verse eight. verse 8. One lot for the Lord and the other... What is, it, what is the... Uh, yeah, go ahead, Caleb. One lot for the Lord and the other for the... God. For the scapegoat. Yes, right. And that's what traditionally we're probably most familiar with that term and that, that concept. So we're gonna talk about this. So atonement is number one on your handout. Has everybody got a handout that wants one? Atonement is applied over Azazel. Alright, so let's talk about this. Who or what is Azazel? So, first of all, we should just say in the ESV and other translations, when it says Azazel, that's just what we call a transliteration of the Hebrew word. So, that's just kind of a way of um, when they're like, we don't really know how to translate this, um, and so we're just going to turn the Hebrew word into English, okay? And Azazel, maybe this is a capital, a, a proper noun, this Azazel. And so, there's different um, uh, explanations that are given for who or what Azazel is. So... One answer that was given, some rabbis in ancient times would say it in Azazel would be a precipice as the goat's destination. The word for precipice, I don't remember it offhand, um, is similar to the Hebrew word that's used here. And so they said it's an allusion to the precipice that the goat would eventually walk off of as it was sent away. Okay, That's one answer. (coughs) A second answer is that this is a unique Hebrew word meaning something like a fierce God or divine anger. It's Azaz plus El. El is a short form for the, the word for God. Okay. Third possibility is that this is a proper name for a demon inhabiting the desert. So in uh, the book of 1 Enoch, which is an apocryphal book, speaks of Azale, Azael, Azael, leader of the fallen angels, so that's uh, another way of looking at this is Azazel. Is a sent- and from this interpretation, we basically look at it as another name in the pantheon of names for Satan. Okay. So this is kind of the, um, for, for whatever reason, that name is invoked here as uh, speaking of that demon in the, in the wilderness. Or fourth, and the most familiar one, is this is a departing goat. So this is, again, derived from the Hebrew. Eitz plus azal would be the escape goat. Or it gets shortened as the scapegoat. Scape yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's escape goat is the, the full idea. Um, we don't totally know. don't exactly know. This is one of those kind of open questions. What exactly is it referring to here? We don't have to answer that question conclusively to be able still to see the significance of this right and what's happening. But it's interesting how this term scapegoat has kind of entered into just... Normal cultural discourse. I mean, when people talk about escape, how do, how do you hear people talking about scapegoat or using that word? How is that used in just kind of everyday conversation? Or someone dump something on. It's okay, somebody to, to dump, dump something, something on. Yeah. Someone to take the blame. Someone to take the blame. Yeah. The fall guy, you might say. right? Um, and this is still a, you know, a, re- a recurring concept. And uh, yeah, Carla. Well, this
1: woman that worked with Jeffrey Epstein Oh, they're calling her a
0: scapegoat. Yep. The fall gal. Yeah. Yeah. And so and that way, that cultural way of using it is not so far off from the biblical meaning of it as we, as we look more closely to this. The idea that there is someone else who is going to bear the blame for an individual or for a group and in so doing is going to lift it away from the rest of them. Scapegoat. So yeah, go ahead, Hans. Isn't that what Christ is? Well, <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Thank I you. Think, um, is that what you're getting <laughs> at? Yeah. So No, well, I mean it's uh, but it's unmistakable. Like yeah, you can't. Spoiler the spoiler alert, alert. <laughs> right? Exactly. I had never thought. of that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Uh, but yes, we'll get there. We'll, we'll we'll park on that a little bit more. Um, but I wanted to draw attention to the fact, too, that here you have two goats and two destinies. So it's not just the scapegoat. So you've got these two, two goats. So you've got the, the first one is the sacrificial animal. And the sacrificial animal is just going to be killed. His blood's going to be used to, to sprinkle. With him, the sins are atoned for. But then you've also got this escape animal, if you will, where the sins are transferred onto and sent away. We're going to come back to this a little bit later um, when we get to the actual execution of the rite starting in verse 20. But just to, to stop here for a second, how do these two goats kind of fill out the picture of atonement? Okay? So you've got the one who has to die and, uh, and in so doing through his blood being shed sacrifice, atone for sins. But then you've got the other one who's still living is sent away, sending the sins away. So God in his wisdom... Appoints two goats for this, so how do they complement each other in giving us a fuller picture of what atonement accomplishes? Does that make sense? God wants these two goats here. So what what, are the, what does that contribute? Why not just the, the one? I don't have an answer for one particular answer for this, by the way. Just yeah. If
2: you just have the one goat who dies, then this, we're still sinful. I mean, we we always are still sinful, uh-huh. but. They're just kind of still
0: hanging around. They're still hanging around. So the sin is forgiven because I, we should say this is this is what the rest of the sacrifices look like in the book of Leviticus, right? There's blood that's shed, animal dies, sin is atoned for, forgiven in that way. But maybe there's this lingering sense that it's still hanging around. Yeah, Becky. The second
1: goat feels more like repentance, like the turning mm-hmm. away. Oh, like good. The separation yeah. from the sin itself. The separation
0: from the sin, the repentance turning away. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Esther.
1: Well, you know, with Jesus uh, in, in his resurrection, uh-huh. you know, he, he through that completed work, then he put um, that total separation, yes. new creation, that everything is new. Here. Yes. So he he kind of had a dual role. Yes. Of of sacrifice yep. and death, you know, to pay for the sins, and then the the second, the you know the, the gift. Of sanctification that we get, the holy life to stand yes. in front of God and pure and listen. Exactly. New you creatures. Know, new, you know, that, that old and new yes. kind of concept.
0: That's very good. Yeah, man.
2: When I look at how the ghosts were chosen between their two futures, mm-hmm. it seems like it's going back to Genesis for me. Okay. At all. Uh, because one is for the Lord and the other is for Azazel. Yeah. Right? So, and we know, you know, some some are chosen, others are not. That's just the reality. Oh, kind of a
0: Jacob and Esau sort of thing? Hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or just the, the, that. And Abel. Yeah, Cain and Abel. Or Cain and Abel. That you, you once the fall happens, you have this mixture of good and evil. Interesting. Combined in humanity. Sure. And,
0: yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a, yeah. That's a good good connection. Okay. Sandy and then Bill.
1: Oh, then uh, I mean that's the song. Our sins are as far as the east is. Going to yes. Yeah. Because you know we are we ruminate. Mm-hmm. We bring it up and God says, "I've forgotten it." I've forgotten it. It's it's out of my sight. Yeah. And you know that's a picture of not
0: doing that. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, Bill. Uh,
1: this may not be
3: terribly it's theological, that. but. <laughs> One of the one of the most difficult parts of forgiveness is for one to forgive themselves, mm-hmm. and so that they can get rid of the sin. Right. You know, they, they, they may be forgiven. Yeah. They may go through all kinds of yeah. processes to be forgiven, but they cannot wash. They, they can't get the sin mm-hmm. away. From them. And sending the goat away mm-hmm. is a way of saying, once you're forgiven, it's done. It's, done. it's over. It's taken away. Yeah, yeah take it away literally taken taken yeah.
0: away there yeah
3: check. it seems like the difficulty with this is like there's a temptation to say the atonement's not enough so oh, okay. the second go you need to do something like you kind of say well
0: you need to it's part of forgiveness but really you need to send it away you know okay and, and the atonement is enough it, to me it's more like kind of like those said, like it's a it's a visual it's a it's sure a, it's a
3: like a can kids like write their sins on a rock and you throw it in the uh in the lake. Yeah. doesn't that doesn't add to their forgiveness. No, but right. It's a demonstration.
0: Of sure. And as you read the rest of the chapter, it seems like they make a big deal of this. Right. Right? And this is to say, hey, like like Bill said, it's done. It's done. It's, it's, done. Done. it's, it's, it's finished. Done. Now, let's let's play a little bit with the idea. If, it, if Azazel is, in fact, Satan, and, you know, as, as Matt points out, the one is for the Lord and the other is for Satan, okay? In what sense if, okay, we're going to, Putting, putting the sins on this goat and sending it away for Satan. What would be the significance or the upshot of that, do you think? Think about this. Um, what is Satan's job? We've talked about this before. You Remember what that name Satan means? The, the, the accuser. Hasatan, the accuser, right? And um, I'm just you know, thinking about how what Satan wants to do is use your sins to accuse you Before the Lord, you see this in the in the book of Revelation. Really, it gives an insight into that, of course, as well in the in the book of Job. And to put the sins of the people and send them to Satan is almost like saying, "Here's that big bucket of sins. What you gonna do about it? Right? I've taken care of it. It's atoned for. Here, you can have them, but it it, it's finished. It's been accomplished. As far as the east is is from the west. Yes, Andy.
1: Oh, interesting. And and part of their uh, heresy is that they believe that Satan plays such a big part in atonement,
0: and he doesn't. Right. You know, he's he's not atoning. It's not him being punished for our sins. It's not him. Right. And the
1: goat is not Satan.
0: Right. No. Sin is Satan. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Because we don't. There's always the two errors that you can make. C.S. Lewis says this at the introduction to screw tape letters, right? The one is not giving Satan enough credit, and the one is giving him too much. (laughs) And so um, it's always kind of walking that fine line. I think what you said there, that background is, it's giving him way too much. Way. Yeah, way, way too much. Yeah, yeah.
2: Azazel being Satan troubles me because I feel like there's room for confusion that Satan needs to be appeased in some way. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: And, that, and that is, I think, there are um, ways in which people talk about atonement where it can lead lead that. Like Satan is still somehow in charge, yeah. and he has to yeah. be, right. And, yeah, I think that that's going too far. God, I mean, God is God. He, he doesn't need Satan's help with this. Right. Esther, were you going to add something?
1: Well, it, you know, you think about Jesus' victory over sin, Death and the devil. Yes. It's kind of like a slap in the face, you know, for Satan. Yeah. You know, you, you thought you were going to get away with this? Right.
0: Yeah. And you're exactly. all going. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's a, just so beautiful. So we'll pause there with it. We'll, we'll come back to it a little bit later when we see how it's, it's actually carried out. But I think it's um, wonderful how God has, has arranged these things. Okay. Go ahead. Yes. I remember when Jesus made the demons come out of the man yeah. to the pigs
1: and then
0: they ran out of the clean? Yeah, right. So they were almost, they were skate pigs. <laughs> <Well, laughs> An a, <precipice. laughs> a precipice. Yeah. That's a good that's a good connection. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Matt probably has nightmares about his pigs doing that. Uh, but that's yeah, that's good, Sam. See, and that's so, that's thinking theologically right? Thinking about, okay, what are these connections to be made there when we're kind of filling out, when we see, you can see how, when the devil is there, when he's active, what kind of stuff does he do? Jesus says, what, what's the devil do? He steals, he kills, he destroys. When you see chaos, when you see uh, death, when you see this kind of thing, you're like, yeah, it's devil's work, right? Yeah. As your grandma used to say, and that, that's, and she's right. That is, that is what to look for. Okay, let's keep going then in uh, verse 11. Read verses um, 11 through 15 as the rite continues. So it says, Aaron shall present the bull. This is getting into the actual execution of the rite itself. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. All right, remember this is the oxygen mask principle, right? If Aaron isn't forgiven, if he isn't atoned for, then he's not going to be able to, to help anybody else. That analogy makes sense, right? Okay. Um, He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he doesn't die. More on that in a minute. Verse 14, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. It's the second time he goes in. Now the third time, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. All right, I want to stop there. Um, So... This is uh, interesting how atonement, if you will, has a Trinitarian shape. What I mean by that is there's three times that Aaron goes in there. Three times he enters into the most holy place to carry out this sacrifice of atonement and atoning for himself and for the holy place. So that first time he goes in, as he entering the, the Holy of Holies, the first entrance is there in verses 12 and 13. He goes in and he takes a censer full of coals and he, it says he puts the incense on the fire bef- before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that's over the testimony so that he doesn't, and doesn't die. What's the connection here? What, why does he need to do this, this incense? How does that keep him from dying? What's the thing that happens in the Old Testament that will drop you dead? Like, looking, at God. looking at God. Yeah, what were you saying? Or touching the Ark of the, of the Covenant, too. Saw that as well. So it's almost like this is a kind of, it's a smokescreen, if you will, of, of the incense, lest the high priest goes in there and sees God and just drops dead. Nobody can see God and live. Right? This is a recurring theme in the, in the scriptures. So it's like, get your incense. I mean, that, to me, I think is the most intimidating moment. Okay. Got my incense? Let's hope I do this right. I mean, you've got to get it to a point where you're like, oh, 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 you know? I want a real good screen going there. Okay. Then the second time is in verse 14. Now, go out and get, sprinkle the bull's blood now seven times on the mercy seat. This is for the high priest himself, sprinkling the blood. And then the third time, verse 15, repeat step two, but with the goat's blood, and this time it's for the people. Okay? So he's covering all of these atoning bases. Um, and what this suggests to me, and to the author of Hebrews, we'll look at in a second, is the, the fullness of this atonement. The fullness of this atonement. That it's covering um, symbolically and actually every inch. Okay, It's covering the holy place itself. It's covering the high priest. It's covering the people. Such is the extensiveness of, of this atonement atoning work of the Lord how far that blood goes and there's a beautiful word that's used for this in Hebrews which as we said is in in some ways a long uh, commentary on Leviticus so go to Hebrews chapter 7 Okay so No, it's called Hebrews, it's not in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. Um, And chapter 7, verse 23, I want want to start at here. And this is in a long section where he's really, the author of Hebrews is really reflecting and comparing and contrasting the ministry of the Old Testament versus the New. So verse 23, "...the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office." But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, To offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, as we've just seen. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word that I just want to linger on there is that word uttermost. Uttermost. That this uh, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus has saved us to the uttermost. The Lord was already pointing to that promise, that extensive forgiveness. Uh, when you have this, this full atoning on the Yom Kippur, but it was always going to be incomplete. It was always going to be leaving the sense of lack. But when Jesus comes, he saves us to the uttermost, so that the cup of forgiveness is full to overflowing. That's what we have in the Lord. I think in, in Leviticus, it's pointing forward to that when you just see all the steps and all, all the measures that the Lord has them go through to ensure that everything is covered. But I can only imagine if you were, uh, if you were there at that time, whether as the priest or as one of the people, you'd always be wondering did we cover all of it, right? Did we get all? Are there any are there any gaps in our armor, as it were? Yeah, go ahead, Matt.
2: I, it, I just keep going back to this um, separation of the two, and for me, the parable of the weeds seems more appropriate. But maybe I'm way out in left field. We'll talk more about that. Well, just the the kind of concept that um, you know you have this one. It's chosen by lot, You have the one that is um, goat that is remaining in the world. Mm-hmm. It's going off to the wilderness, right. remaining in the world. The other, although it loses its life, is presented to the Lord yes. um, as this saving atoning sacrifice. Right. Um, now they are both involved in you know this process here, I guess, but you know, in the parable of the weeds it, it does make it clear that um, you know there are good seeds that are the sons of man um, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one the one who sowed them is the devil mm-hmm. You know, harvest in the end of mm-hmm. the age it, to me it's kind of a hearkening of that reality, that okay. present reality mm-hmm. more than you know, eternity sure. finished, right. that, that coming later right. with Christ so,
0: so in that respect um, if we can call it the scapegoat as, as kind of suggestive or symbolic of um, for those who are separated from the Lord which and, and that sense of the, the weeds versus the wheat. I think that there, you can see that. I mean, anytime you have that kind of separation, when you think of sheep and the goats, there's, there tends to be those sorts of, of overtures. Um, so I wouldn't dismiss that. Um, but we're going to look at another text, too, that to me underscores that I think in this particular rite, we're, we're principally intended to see with both of these goats of... A um, uh, refraction of the atoning work of Christ, so that both of them are ultimately pointing forward to two aspects of what Christ has accomplished. But I think when, when you when you see that kind of separation, I mean that application that you're drawing out of it, of course, is not um, illegitimate by any means because that's a, a recurring theme in the Scripture too. But yeah, go ahead, Terry. Another one uh, to think about is is like how baptism is one and done, yeah, but communion is
2: for the continuing
0: on the sure. um, yeah. same kind of thing. Yes, that's right. So there's that uttermost salvation, but that continual nurturing and, and progression of it. Yeah, yeah. Do
2: you think that you said atonement has a Trinitarian shape, and you drew out three, the ball is for the, no, the incense is, hold on.
0: Three, so three. this like? Yeah. So the first entrance just filling with a cloud of, of incense on and the then sprinkling. Fire. Holds blood, and then goes blood.
2: Okay. So do you think these have kind of, um, are they analogous to the three persons?
0: I mean, I, I don't want to press it that far. Okay. So, yeah, I mean this more in just kind of a, a broader sense. But, um, yeah. Does, yeah, go ahead, Sandy.
1: Does incense represent prayer?
0: Yeah, so typically, especially in the Old Testament, incense is suggestive of prayer. Let my prayer rise before you like incense. So, I mean, that's the yeah, I'm. I'm trying to think if the spirit per se is ever referred to as incense. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, don't I don't. believe so. I but
1: mean, like it. what's it? Like like
0: but prayer. But prayer. Yeah, exactly. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is the blood ever cleaned up? I'm just curious. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Right. That's a, lot, that's a lot of blood. And you know I mean? i just wondering, is, that, is there like a housekeeping
3: crew comes through afterwards right, that, that exactly. doesn't die when
0: do this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a it's a sprinkled job. That's true. He's sprinkling in this case. He's not, he's not pouring. No, I I don't think if, if, so. If I sprinkle gold blood in my house, at some point I have to clean it up. <laughs> I, I <understand. laughs> right. All right. understand. a
3: cleaning crew come in afterwards. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, again, this is once a year. And so I, I'm thinking that it, it stays there as a, just a perpetual testimony. But I don't know. I mean when it comes to the other sacrifices and so forth, yeah, it's, get, it's getting cleaned up. But uh, with the, in the Ark of the Covenant, in that most holy place, yeah, I don't think they're calling in the janitor afterwards. To, to they <laughs> probably have incense. I'm just saying. Right. That's what they need. incense Yeah, go ahead.
4: Now, with the scapegoat, was the placing of sins on a symbolic? We'll get there in a minute.
0: Yeah. That's <laughs> right. I know. Hans is always two steps ahead of me, so I just have to pull him back a little bit. Um, I, just want, I just want to make this, this point briefly. Um, as it continues, verses 16 through 19, the focus is on the actual, it talks about actual atoning for the place, for the space. So this isn't just atoning for people but also for places, things, material. And I I, I say this kind of thing a lot, but I think it it bears repeating because sometimes we can just have this idea that atonement and God's work is just so spiritual that it's devoid and disconnected from earthly physical realities. Mm -hmm. When in fact, what we see in the scriptures is God's intention and execution of the redemption of the whole physical creation. He cares about matter matter matters to him right he made it he loves it he cares for it he's going to redeem it so that that the the picture of of revelation in the new heavens and the new earth is that the new jerusalem coming down it's not about people flying up to god but about god coming down and restoring and renewing this creation see Theologians bicker about this sometimes. Is God going to blow this place up, kind of Star Wars style, and then make a whole new one? Or is he going to renew and refresh, renovate this current creation? And I lean much more toward the latter. Because God's in the business not of pitching things, but of fixing them. right? Not of tossing things out, but of redeeming, renewing, and restoring them. And what Jesus says is, behold, I make all things new. Not, I make all new things. Hmm? Um, and actually, in Greek, they have two words. There's neos, you know, and anytime you see neo, that kind of prefix, which is brand new, you know, spanking new. But then there's kynos and it's that new of re- renewed, okay? Uh, when it talks about the new moon, it's a kinos moon, because there isn't a, you know, a brand spanking new moon every month, but it's the, re- the renewal. Such is the renewal that. God has given, is, is intending to do for the full physical creation. And the, the best picture of this is still uh, the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia oh, series, yeah. at the very end of it. And uh, C.S. Lewis just does this beautiful, he's one of the few people that, it's kind of a, a truism that sin and evil is easier to depict in fiction and literature than goodness is. Because, you know, goodness,
2: well,
0: we don't know that, Sin, that's interesting, right? And people accuse in Paradise Lost that Satan is the most interesting character in Paradise Lost rather than than the Lord. But C.S. Lewis is actually able to really powerfully depict that future good, goodness, that that lay ahead. All right, I'm just kind of riffing there a little bit, but thoughts or reflections, yeah? Also
3: the sense of sacred space. The sense of sacred space, yeah. You walk into a place that he has cleansed specifically for... Where we get to meet him, right? And and it's not so much you step out of time because we're always in this time. We're always in this world and are to be. Yeah. At the same time, it reminds me of when Priscilla I would go to Manila and um, about once a year when we had to leave six thousand feet in the cool climate and go down to Manila. If you could imagine, <laughs> but we go into the consulate. And um, you had Marines at the gate, and you walk in, and there was a water cooler. You didn't have to boil the water first. And (laughs) Ronnie Reagan's picture was on the wall, and there was an American flag, and people queued up and good lines, I mean, it was home, <laughs> but it was home. Yeah. And we would be there for so many hours maybe, and then we walk back out into the world in which we were missionaries, yeah. but for those few minutes, we were yes. home. Yes, yes. And, and for me, that was sacred space. Yes. And and I think the tabernacle was yes. meant to be that place yeah. that, that this is your home. It's Out there is real, and yeah. you have a reason to be out there, yeah. but this is home.
0: Yeah. It's. It's this, um, it's been called like the colony of the kingdom, right? It's this beachhead of heaven within the world where God is pressing forward with his holiness. Oh, did you find the ring? Yeah, it's
1: cursed.
0: Oh, it's on my desk. Yeah. Um, This beachhead of God's blessing entering into the world. And that's why it's so important when in Exodus 19, God says to his people, who are you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Because now your vocation is going to be to go out and to be bridge builders from this beachhead of the kingdom out into the world. Now I'm going to send you out as this kingdom of priests to bring that blessing to your neighbors who are still in the, the grips of profanity in the, this technical sense, right? Of a, a world that is um, rife not with holiness but with unholiness. And now you're taking that, that cleanliness of the Lord, his cleansing forgiveness out into the world, flooding it in that. In that way, so it's a great image and analogy. People in straight lines, That's things we take for granted. And that was so cool. Do they even turn? have the little thing you could pull the number. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Hans wants us to get to uh, the, the actual right at all. So verses 20 through 22. Yes. Um, okay. When he has made Aaron, when he has made an, an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar. He shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. It's a long day. It's a really long day. And all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself To a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness okay so here you have this this picture of the scapegoat of that second goat now go ahead and ask your your question what you're going to say oh
4: is it symbolic what they were doing here or was it like on Christ, Yeah, the weight of the sins and right. everything else that crushed Christ, right. was that going to happen to that poor goat that's right. being released? Yeah, you know, I mean,
0: right, so this goat is not able to bear the, the sins of the world right? right. the way that our, our Lord is. So I think it's primarily symbolic, but by the same token, the, I think we're very much led to believe that there's a real kind of transference of the iniquity and the uncleannesses of the people of God onto that goat. How does that happen? It's hard to say. But really, for us, I mean, you you make the connection to Jesus. This is one of the key images and passages for us to understand what's happening at atonement, right? In the atonement, on the cross. Without that kind of background, the whole notion that... So wait a second, there's this one random guy... Some you know peasant itinerant preacher in Nazareth and, and and Galilee and somehow he atones for the sins of the whole world that makes no sense unless you have this background of the, of the Old Testament and specifically of Yom Kippur of the Day of Atonement that yeah this is how Christ is functioning here right yeah Chip
3: so well, okay we sing Lamb of God not Goat to God
0: yeah. which is from the Passover Yeah. that seems like that superseded this as far as a, a the most popular typology yeah. for where Jesus was, yes, right. So I'll I'll talk more about that in okay. just a moment because that's a really um, uh, important point. And I think just briefly speaking, the Scriptures give us not just one lens through which to understand our Lord's work, but many facets, many ways, which are going to highlight and elucidate different things, different aspects. And I would say Passover and um, Yom Kippur both have something to contribute um, to our understanding of, of atonement. So more on that in a minute. But the main point right here is that atonement is substitu- substitutionary, right? That you have a, um, a, a sinless, innocent victim, if you will, who is bearing that for the sake of others. Okay? So Isaiah 53, which we looked at before, it's the classic passage that picks up on this image. Let's go to Isaiah 53 now. 14 in the Pew Bible here. Isaiah 53, I'm gonna pick up with verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Remember, we looked at this before, plagued, literally plagued for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, there's so much in this Isaiah 53 passage, but one of the things that it does is it does bring together both these Passover and Yom Kippur images. So again, it speaks not of the goat, but of the lamb, which is more evocative of the Passover. You have the, the pure spotless lamb. But here you have this lamb, it's speaking of that, how the Lord not only has this one who has been sacrificed, but also who, has be, who is bearing away the sins of the world. Now, we use, we, I think that's one of those metaphors that just becomes kind of static or a dead metaphor. We don't think of it metaphorically. It's just, yeah, you, you take away. You, that's just another way of saying forgiven. But remember, it has this narrative root in Yom Kippur. When we talk about, oh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who bears it away, this is calling back and hearkening back to this moment of the scapegoat who is literally taking the sins of the people away. That's the idea. And so Isaiah 53 becomes this really important text and lens through which to um, further narrow and sharpen what happens in Yom Kippur and then what Jesus is going to do. So that when Jesus finally says, as he does in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. It's one who is the, the price to be paid in order to set us free Um. but one other can you think of one other significant moment apart from the cross in our Lord's life and ministry that might have resonances with this scapegoat idea Yeah, yeah. when he is tempted in
1: the wilderness
0: bingo so think about this too how at the outset of, of his ministry Jesus goes out into the wilderness same word there that's used here in Leviticus goes out into the desolate place apart from from everyone else. And there, who does he go to? But, if you will, Azazel, right? He goes and is tempted by the devil for 40 days. And he's among the wild animals, it says. Sunday school, speaking of among the wild animals. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, But I I think that that is a, a great anticipation too. Just like we said last week with the baptism, his baptism is this kind of picture of him as that first goat, of the one who's absorbing the sin, taking on himself, and then where does he go right after that? As he stands with sinners, he's cast out into the wilderness. I don't think that's coincidental. See, it underscores that movement of the of bear, bearing the sin on himself and then bearing it away. Right. Okay. Thoughts or reflections on that? Yeah, I was, I
4: was just thinking of uh, Matthew 25. Verse 31, the sheep. Yes, yeah. The sheep and the and the goat. And, right. Uh, how the goats are going to be cast into hell.
0: Yes. Uh,
4: and the sheep are, yeah. so it's not good to be a goat.
0: <laughs> I just want to be a goat. No, no, no. that's not a song. <laughs> that's
4: right. It's a sheep. Yeah.
0: That was the first draft of that hymn. It wasn't, it wasn't as good. Well, okay, so since we're, we're going there, let's, Look, look at this kind of contrast. Oh, and here I have that passage from Psalm 103 that Sandy alluded to before. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Beautiful, beautiful love message of gospel. Okay, but I've got a slide here specifically for this. Passover versus Yom Kippur. Things that are accented with both of these. So first, Passover. As mentioned, a lamb is sacrificed. What is the function, what's the goal of this sacrifice in in the Passover? It's not for the forgiveness of sin so much as what? It's delivering from slavery. You are are held in, in bondage, and now through this you're going to be delivered and set free. There isn't much talk, if any, about it being propitiary, to use that fancy word, mm-hmm. of, uh, atoning, and then it culminates in a feast. Okay, so Passover is ultimately about a feast, and there's a lot that's in there about this is going to be a party, right? This is a, this is going to be a big feast day for you each and, each and every year. And then also, Passover has this um, um, sub theme of the judgment on the nations, okay, on Egypt and on those nations that have rejected God and God's purposes for them. Okay, So it has that kind of, it's more of, if you just have Passover, I think you can get more of a triumphalist sort of mindset as the as people of God. That's right. It's not so much that we need our sins forgiven. We've just got other people who are holding us in bondage. We need to be liberated from them, and then God can dunk on them and show them all the ways they've gone wrong. That's, that looks lovely on you. Also, uh, yeah. also the fact
3: he's coming in judgment, in the Passover blood is this umbrella
0: over which the judgment does not touch us. That's right. So there is a ransoming there. There's very much a ransoming, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I think, uh, and I, I think it'd be hard for them not to see in that the Israelites um, some kind of substitutionary work there. But it's it's just not the main em- main emphasis. But then in Yom Kippur, as we said, you have one goat who's sacrificed and another who is released. This delivers not from slavery, but from guilt, the guilt of sin. It culminates not in a feast, but in a fast. It's the one mandatory fast in the Old Testament. A lot more ended up kind of springing up, but this was the one mandatory fast for the people of God. And the judgment is not on the nations, but it's on they themselves. Judgment starts here at the the household of God. If you only have that side of it, you're going to have a a, a people maybe who are too um, inwardly focused or too uh, preoccupied just with getting my sins forgiven and not seeing that larger vision of atonement and of redemption. But I think when we have both of these together, both Passover and Yom Kippur, we're able to see this fuller picture of all that, that Christ has accomplished. And more, too. There's other ways. When you think of some of the other feasts of the Old Testament, which we're going to see coming up in in subsequent chapters in Leviticus, all of this is filling out the full picture of what God has done for us through our Lord Jesus. So, thoughts or or questions on that? Okay, so one last thing, then, since I did uh, mention the the fasting. Uh, Jump ahead to back in Leviticus 16. At the end of the, the chapter, verse 29... It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves or fast, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. This is for everybody. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. Okay, so lastly, on your handout, fasting lets the Lord cook. Okay, and uh, you know, when when we fast, the idea that it's stated there is now don't work. Why? So that the Lord can work for you and work on you, right? You need to kind of carve out that time and that space so that he can be at work in you and, and through you. And fasting is one of those things that, you know, Christians, are, we, we can feel a little nervous about, like, oh, I, you know, should I do that? I don't want to think that I'm doing this as some kind of good work or meritorious work or blah, blah, blah. And Jesus speaks specifically about that, right, in Matthew 6. He says, when you fast, don't disfigure your face or, and, and so forth. But we miss the lead there, which is Jesus saying, when you fast, Right. It's assumed that you're going to do this, saying, yeah, don't use it for self-righteousness or to puff yourselves up or to say, hey, what are you having for lunch? Oh, I'm having a burger. Oh, I'm not having any lunch today. Fasting, for the Lord. You know." Um, so that's, we, we lose the focus of it when we, when we do that, right? Uh, but I just think fasting can be such a salutary spiritual discipline. Uh, when we do it with this mindset of like, you know what? It's good for me, especially as Americans, you know, it's good for me actually to feel a pang of hunger once in a while, right? right? And to, um, to, to carve out that space in my belly and in, in my time. I mean, just as a practical matter, if I'm going to fast for a meal, that means I don't have to take the time to prepare it and to eat it. I can use it in, in other ways. So, just to get uber practical here at the end, um, time, times to fast, you know, the, the church generally recognizes. So seasons of the church year, Lent and Advent are what we think of as like the penitential seasons. Um, Lent more so than Advent, but both kind of have this this tenor. But especially if we're looking ahead to Lent, uh, it can be a wonderful time to have a practice of fasting. Maybe it's one day a week, you you skip a meal. Or maybe your fasting isn't from food, but it's from, like many people will do nowadays, from social media. Okay, that might be an even more salutary fast, right? Uh, The fasting, I mean, when it talks about afflicting yourselves here in Leviticus, they were fasting from pretty much everything for 24 hours. Not just food, but also drink, and other things, work, of course. Uh, So there's those seasons of the year. A second thing, which um, isn't super well-known, but it's the idea of ember days. And ember days are the Wednesday and Friday following these four moments, okay, in the church year. After St. Lucia Day, which is December 13th, after the first Sunday in Lent, after Pentecost, and after Holy Cross, there's September 14th. There's an interesting history behind this, and it's kind of keyed in some ways to um, historically to a more agricultural society. So you'd have these ember days, days of prayer and fasting, these different um, moments in, in the year. But the Wednesday and Friday following those days would be ember days, days for, for fasting and, and prayer. And then thirdly, maybe just a, a small way, if you, you've never fasted before, to kind of dip your toe into it is before receiving Holy Communion on Sunday. This is a, an old churchly practice. I think it's a good one. The idea of breakfast, you're breaking fast. That was the idea. You're, bre- you're breaking the fast before the Lord's Supper so that on, on the Lord's Day, the first food to touch your lips is the Lord's body and blood. Right. I think that's a, a really uh, powerful thing. And again, it has that practical thing of Sunday morning, you're already bustling around to, to get ready for church. Say, okay, we're, we're going to cut one thing out so that, I have maybe a little bit more time. Yes, Andy. I think it's good to refresh uh, Isaiah 58. Yes,
1: good. Do you want,
0: yeah, so okay. Isaiah 58. Yeah, so Isaiah 58, I think, um, is reflective of when fasting gets abused and if you start to use it as a way to kind of prop yourself up uh, before the Lord. And uh, God says and Isaiah 58, uh, verse 3, He's speaking now for the people. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast that I choose? To loose the bond of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. It goes on from there. And so the the Prophet, the Lord through the Prophet is saying, Look, don't anytime you make the fast, just about and you see this in the, the famous parable Jesus tells of the publican, the tax collector, and the Pharisee, right? And the tax collector comes in and says, Hey, hey I fast twice a week, and blah, blah, blah. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. So, yeah, thank you, Sandy. All right. Uh, any last reflections or, or thoughts beyond fasting or Day of Atonement? We've covered a lot of ground here in this book. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you yes, used, so it is Jesus. Go. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, you used the
4: word afflicting. <laughs> yes. Mine says deny. Yeah. I don't see the word fast there. Why? Do, why is it translated that way?
0: Is it that way in the
4: in the Hebrew or?
0: Uh, yeah. Good question. I don't have my Hebrew in front of me, but I mean, it's just a, a nuance of of translation. But um, I don't they use the word fast because I think because when we hear fast, it carries a particular connotation. Where I think afflict yourself is the probably the literal translation of it, um, but fasting is the. Idea, the uh, kind of the dynamic equivalent of it, but afflicting yourselves in the sense of self-denial, you might say. So, yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. Well, thank you guys for your uh, participation and attention, and we will carry on through Leviticus next week. See you then.